When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 3rd, 2017. On this week's show, Sally Jenkins of The Washington Post will join us to talk about the Women's Final Four, wherein Mississippi State snapped UConn's 111-game winning streak and then went on to lose to South Carolina in the national title game. We'll also discuss Gonzaga and North Carolina's wins at the men's Final Four, as well as Oregon forward Jordan Bell's post-game self-flagellation, in which he insisted the Ducks' one-point loss to UNC was all his fault. Finally, we'll assess the Raiders' move to Las Vegas and a couple other stories in a hang-up lightning round. Joining me in Washington, D.C., is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from a hotel room in Atlanta, which he presumably booked to guarantee he would have access to a high-quality podcasting robe. It <laughs> is our honored guest for the day, Joel Anderson of BuzzFeed News. Hey, Joel. Hey, Josh, Stefan. Uh, pleasure to be on here. We're very happy to have you and just glad that you're comfortable. Oh, and- yeah. It's a Hyatt place. It's in... Uh- it's in Buckhead. Uh, I'm doing pretty well, I, I'd say. But I, I do have to check out at uh, 1 o'clock. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, get, we'll talk really fast. Just, right. <laughs> you know, make, we'll, we'll allow you uh, ample time to pack. Um, we've got the Hang Up and Listen survey still going on. We're going to keep that open for another week. If you have thoughts on what we're doing on the show and what you'd like to hear, who you'd like to hear, uh, go to slate.com slash survey. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about a subject that is near and dear to Joel's heart. Maybe the subject, maybe Joel's favorite subject in all the world, Mr. LeVar Ball, provocateur, basketball dad. Oh, my God. Hang up and listen, guest. (laughs) Join Slate Plus to hear about LeVar Ball and other basketball dads. It's just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. And you can sign up for that at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Sunday night in Dallas, South Carolina beat Mississippi State 67 to 55 to win its first national title in women's basketball. The most remarkable win of the weekend, though, went to those Mississippi State Bulldogs. They had lost to Connecticut in last year's NCAA tournament by 60 points. This year, the Bulldogs and the Huskies were tied at 64 in overtime which is way better than being down, for example, 64 to 4. Anyway, here is what it sounded like when Mississippi State had the ball 
and the clock was winding down in overtime. Dillingham across midcourt. Dillingham with it. Five to get off a shot. William on the drive. Pull up, pull up. Joining us now is The Washington Post's Sally Jenkins, who was at the Final Four in Dallas. Hey, Sally. Hey there. So I just want you to tell us what it was like in those last 10 seconds of the Mississippi State-UConn game. Well, the the main thing it was like was the the noise. I mean, you know, uh, it was like this avalanche coming down from the the stands because everybody's on their feet screaming in, in the American Airlines Center and and then here comes this little kid who, you know, it's the 45th minute of the game, and, you know, she does a couple of crossover dribbles and finds a little space, and she goes up in the face of Gabby Williams, the defensive player of the year in women's college basketball, who's bigger than her by about seven inches, and she gets this shot up, and she elevates, and you just can't believe that in that minute of the game she still had enough left to, to elevate like that. And then, and then the shot just drops through, and the the place, ex, you know, exploded. Uh, it was a, it, you know, it it was a moment that uh, women's basketball hadn't had too too many of those type of moments. It was a great moment for the for the game. You're talking about Morgan William, of course, the five foot five point guard for Mississippi State, and who, watching... by the way, is closer to five foot three than five <laughs> foot five. They list her at five five. As my father would say, she might be 5'5", standing in cleats on a hardwood floor. (laughs) And when you look at the photo, the image of her elevating, she's up around, you know, she's up around her waist. It it was incredible at that moment. And that really struck me, too. What happened on UConn's final possession, though? There are two things that I took away from that game. And one, UConn did not play very well. And when Gino Auriemma, the coach of UConn, has his team not there, his team isn't playing well, you can see it on his face. And he had that look of bemusement after Morgan Williams hit that last shot. I thought he handled himself pretty well after the game, but clearly he couldn't have been pleased with his team's performance. How do you think he handled it afterward, too? Oh, I thought he was terrific. I mean, he was everything you would hope the the, the leader and voice of the game would be. He was very gracious. Yeah. You know, it was inevitable they were going to lose eventually. The remarkable thing about UConn's 111-game streak is that not one time in those 111 games did they beat themselves. And they didn't beat themselves the other night either. I mean, they shot the ball uh, in the high 40 percentage. Uh, Now, they didn't execute on a couple of things down the stretch, and they missed a couple free throws. Um, But they they did not play badly. A lot of that uh, was inflicted by Mississippi State's defense and quickness. So, you know, I thought that he understood and recognized that. He recognized that, you know, his kids had gotten him to a Final Four when no one thought they had, you know, uh, a chance to start the season after losing Brianna Stewart and Morgan Tuck and Mariah Jefferson, you know, the top three players in the WNBA draft. And, uh, and you come back with a bunch of understudies uh, who really did everything he had asked of them all year long. So, uh, you know, I, I just thought he was very gracious, and it was what it was what you would have hoped for from, you know, the, the leader of the game. Yeah, it was a great message. It was about the totality of the experience, he said, not the final result. And he also said something that really coaches should say more of, which is, 
you know, kids should hope that's the worst moment of their lives. Right. And the fact is that it won't be. You know, life is much harder than basketball. And so I think he did a good job of keeping it in perspective. Yeah, and obviously, you know, UConn is the Goliath in women's college basketball. But the one thing about Mississippi State is that they didn't have to beat all those other UConn teams, right? They didn't have to beat the team with Brianna Stewart. Um, they didn't, you know, this was of of those these these champions of recent vintage. This was probably the weakest team, right? And so, like, that's all you need. Like, they were they were just weak enough. Mississippi State, you know, came back with a lot of the same team that had lost about sixty the year before. Um, everybody's you're you're better, older, and then they've got this, like this tremendous motivation to beat a team that had humiliated them the year before. So, I mean, yeah, in, in a one-game sample, um, that's the sort of thing that can happen. Uh, and, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing maybe Gino expects to win a championship every year. I don't know. But um, if you were going to lose, this would be the year that you would lose, right? Yeah, and, and not only that, but I think, I think it hurts less to lose on a shot like that. I mean, as, as Oriema said, you know, that's one of the hardest shots to hit in basketball you know, she's dribbling hard. Morgan Williams has to drive hard, create space, stop on a dime, and get up a 15-footer. Uh, you know, they, they talked in the huddle, don't give up the three, don't give up the dribble drive to the basket and, and, and foul. Uh, but, the, you know, they, they basically said if they're going to beat us, they're going to have to beat us with a pull-up, you know, from outside of a certain range. And that's just exactly what happened. I mean, as Oriyama said, you, you can't think up a harder shot to hit in that moment. So this was not the case where um, UConn was uh, the Soviet Union and then South Carolina was Finland. This was the case where UConn was uh, Rafael Nadal, Mississippi State was Robin Soderling. Then they, <laughs> they lost in the, in the final. Was it surprising to you that uh, Mississippi State lost by 12 to South Carolina in the final game. Morgan William, I think, even said this was like winning the championship, dot, 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 even though, you know, we still know we have a game left to play. Right. I mean, that was the toughest part of preparing a team emotionally to, to turn around and play South Carolina. I mean, they knew how good South Carolina was. They've, they've lost to them, I think it's 10 straight times. Uh, and, you know, South Carolina was bigger. South Carolina was like their UConn. Yeah, South Carolina's bigger and faster. Dawn Staley is, I think, probably the superior coach to Vic Schaefer. She's more experienced. Uh, she was in her third Final Four as a coach. She played in, uh, or she was in her second Final Four as a coach, and she played in three of them as a player, and played in. You know, she's got 17 international gold medals as a player and a coach. So, I mean, I just think that she was the superior sideline presence. Number one, knew how to prepare for this better. I mean, one thing I'm hearing is that Vic Schaefer ran his kids uh, in practice on Saturday, which is a real rookie mistake in a Final Four, especially wow. after a tough overtime game the night before. And an overtime game in the previous round. And uh, Yeah, they have to beat Baylor in overtime to get to the Final Four. Then they've got to beat UConn. So they have to beat two top seeds in overtime and play, and play a third top seed in South Carolina that you know is going to make you play on the run. That doesn't Why sound like a mistake. That sounds insane. For two hours on Saturday, <laughs> yeah. when you only got three hours sleep, and you got to come back the very next afternoon. I mean, my understanding is that Dawn Staley had her team doing yoga. You know, so I just think uh, I, I think the turnaround was going to be tough under any circumstances, but I think their coach complicated it, probably misplayed his hand, 
And then I thought that for him to bench Morgan William in the fourth quarter of that game was probably one of the most disgraceful things I've ever seen a head coach do. Oh, I want to get to that. I, one point I want to make before we talk about that is that, to me, it was clear that South Carolina was the far superior team. You mentioned yeah. quicker, faster, stronger. The three best players on the basketball court were Asia Wilson, Alicia Gray, and Kayla Davis. Yeah. By far in that game, it was clearly... It would, you know, UConn in terms of talent matched up much better with South Carolina than Mississippi State did, and they were exposed. They were exposed in the fourth quarter, particularly. It was fifty-four fifty. Mississippi State cut that lead with about six and a half minutes to go, and then it ended up sixty-six fifty-two. And Morgan William was on the bench for that entire run, the entire yeah. fourth quarter. You were talking about it on Twitter. I was responding. Some other people chimed in. This to me was utterly disgraceful. You take a woman, a young woman who delivered the most dramatic shot possibly in the history of women's college basketball. And then you effectively humiliate her on national television when your audience is bigger than it's ever been because of what she had done. I was watching the fourth quarter stunned that she was glued to the bench. And all I could think was either she's hurt or she did something outrageous that would demand her being benched. Well, that, that's the thing. You know, if it's a major disciplinary problem, that's one thing. Uh, but if it's a performance issue, you don't do that to a kid. You work with them. You know, you coach them through it. If they're low energy or their legs are dead or they're tired. I mean, look, that M- Morgan William, according to her coach and her teammates, is one of the hardest working, nicest kids on that team. Okay. All weekend long, all we heard was how much gut she had, how hard-working she was, what a great attitude she had. Vic Schaefer himself uh, talked about it on and on, about how he knew what kind of tough, great, hard-working kids he had in that locker room. So it is really hard to conceive of a reason that he would do that to her in that moment, unless it was sheer cruelty and he wanted to basically ruin the experience for her. Which is what he did. I mean, let's not forget, this is the 34-4 and team. She started every game, second in scoring on the team, led the team in steals. It it was embarrassing. Right. I mean, you're talking about a kid, you're talking about a junior who's put, first of all, three years of sweat equity into the program and presumably done everything you've been asked to do because you're the starting point guard. You're an honorable mention All-American, uh, you're you're a, a, a team leader that everybody talks about as the beating heart of the squad, and uh, and you've delivered a, a performance for the ages in the in the tournament throughout the tournament to get your team to the brink of a championship, and now you're going to bench her in the fourth quarter for being a little low energy. I mean that is that is coaching malpractice among other things. Uh, you know it, it just it beggars the imagination. Uh, I don't know any coach who was anything other than baffled and actually rather upset by what they saw from him. And uh, I think he owes the kid and the whole team an apology. You don't bail on a kid and betray a kid in that moment. I watched Diana Taurasi go one for 15 against Notre Dame in the Final Four as a freshman. Oriyama left her on the floor to play through it, worked with her in every timeout, and when he finally pulled her, when they were losing to Notre Dame by 90 to 75, he went over and sat down next to her and put an arm around her. That's how you handle a kid in that moment. Joel, you're a huge uh, Don Staley fan, right? What do, um, what do you admire so much about her? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, she was on an episode of Martin when I was a kid. So, I mean, that was a big thing. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean... 
I mean, if we're talking about like the star, like if there was, I mean, Mount Rushmore is like a cliched construction, right? But like if there is one of those for women's basketball in like the last, you know, quarter century, then like Don Staley probably is on it. Um, I mean, she's won three Olympic gold medals. She's a six-time WNBA All-Star. I mean, what's, I mean, maybe the closest comparison, and I saw, Sally, you said uh, Bill Russell uh, is maybe the, maybe the best comparison. I said maybe Jerry West. Um, for what she's accomplished as a player and as like an executive, essentially, um, it's it's just, it's tough to think of somebody else who's had a career like that where they were great, they were legitimately great as a player, and then great uh, in the uh, in the uh, the latter half of their career when they moved into the front office or into the you know the head coaching seat. Um, it's just sort of remarkable. There's not there's not a lot of examples like that, uh, and the fact is, is that she didn't even want to be a coach. Like I mean. She thought she was going to be playing, you know, the, all, the whole time. And now she's, you know, become one of the, you know, one of the greatest coaches. I mean, so far, you'd have to say she's one of the three or four best coaches left in the game right now. Yeah, you know, I, I think that what's interesting is that most of the people who played with her and that she played for uh, as, a, as a player at Virginia and, and, a, and a player for USA Basketball thought that she could certainly be a coach if she wanted to. I mean, you know, she ran the U.S. Olympic team for 16 years. I mean, most most of the most of her head coaches deferred to her. Yeah. You know, Nell Fortner, who I talked to last night, said, you know, Staley would come running over to the sideline uh, and say, you know, we need to do this. And and Nell would just, who was the head coach of the Olympic gold medal team, would just say, okay, Don, go do it. You know, yeah, let's do that. So I think she was a floor coach long before she took on the actual title. And it was the, the Temple athletic director talked her into it and said, you know, come back home to Philly and, and, and try this. I think you'd be really good at it. And, uh, you know, she just was automatically, instantly so good at it. She, you know, her very first season when she's a player, she's still a WNBA player, she coached Temple to their best season in a decade. So she's just a natural. She really is. And, uh, you know, I think she's a really formidable new rival for the Blue Bloods, for the Connecticut's and the and the Baylors and the Tennessees and and you know the other uh, you know traditional powers in women's college basketball, I think I think she's here to stay. And the interesting thing about her is that she doesn't seem to ever get tired of winning. So much winning. So what is the significance, especially this week, with the conversation based largely on Gina Oriama's comments? about uh, the decline in the number of women coaching, what's the significance of um, Staley winning this her first national title? Well, I think, uh, you know, Don Staley and Tara Vanderveer both, you know, took exception to what Gino had to say. I don't think anybody thinks that, that he's a sexist. He's nobody's sexist. I just think people felt like he hadn't really thought through and understood the issue uh, you know, he's lived in a, in a bubble of success for so long. I think he doesn't understand that if you're a, a female assistant coach, particularly a black female assistant coach, and uh, you have even one uh, career setback or reversal, it's really, really hard to get another job when 88% of the athletic directors in the country are white men. So, you know, I, I just think, like, for instance, Dawn Staley had Melanie Balcom on her bench last night, she hired Melanie Balcom as a fourth assistant coach. Melanie Balcom was head coach at Vanderbilt, uh, made, you know, 12 uh, NCAA tournaments and coached Vanderbilt to the best records in school history. And when she got fired, 
uh, first of all, she gets fired for that, and second of all, had real trouble finding another job that could accommodate the fact that she's the mother of two children under the age of six. So it's complicated. You know, if the number of women coaches is falling, it's, it's there's seven or eight complicated interlocking factors. There's more competition for the jobs because now men want those jobs now that they pay uh, decent salaries and they're not embarrassed to have them anymore, which they were even 25 years ago. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, it, it, the, the makeup of the hiring roles is, is, I think, probably somewhat slanted and biased. You know, it's an unconscious bias, but it's there. Sally Jenkins is a writer for The Washington Post, and she was at the Final Four in Dallas where she saw history made on Friday and saw South Carolina win on Sunday. Sally, thanks so much for being on the show. Always enjoy it, you guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Unless you are a Monday early evening listener, in which case, thank you for listening so soon after the podcast is posted. The NCAA men's final will have finished up by the time you're listening to this. So congratulations to either Gonzaga or North Carolina for doing whatever it is they did. On Saturday night, let's talk about Saturday night. The Zags beat South Carolina in a quite entertaining game, and North Carolina beat Oregon by one, despite missing a buttload of free throws in the last six seconds. Oregon's Jordan Bell, who had 16 rebounds in the game, failed to grab the ball off the boards two separate times at the end, and afterwards he blamed himself for the loss. Let's listen. We had a good year, but I mean, we didn't reach our goal. You were one of the last people out hooking up at the scoreboard. Any thoughts running through your head or what's going through your mind? I would have just boxed out. I had two opportunities to do it. We lost the game because of it. Joel, the thing that I thought was interesting about this, two things. Number one, just how important context is for these things because the GOAT in these situations is usually the dude who misses the free throws, right? And they were totally degotified by uh, Jordan Bell. The other thing is that boxing out is just this like very old school fundamental thing that gives absolutely no agency to the guy you know, Kennedy makes for actually acquiring the rebound. Just makes it seem like it's a hundred percent total failure of the you know the defensive rebounder in this case Jordan Bell. And just gives absolutely no credit for the guy who actually did get the ball. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, we got to think about the fact that the guy that got that final rebound was somebody who had 14 rebounds in the game already. So he's pretty good at that. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, I think North Carolina is the best offensive rebounding team in the country. Yep. So it's not <laughs> like, I mean, okay, yes, yeah, so we can acknowledge Jordan Bell didn't put a body on his man. But, like, come on. Uh, you know, he gave up a rebound to the— uh, the best rebounder on the top offensive rebounding team in the country. So those sorts of things are going to happen. It just seems really bad. Like if that had happened in the third, if that had happened at like the 12 minute mark, 
of the second half, nobody would have said anything. It would have been, oh, it would have looked bad. But because it happened when it did, it looked particularly bad. Right. Um, I think it was Ken Pomeroy on Twitter who was saying also that like the notion of boxing out and like and that technique is very like old fashioned. It's not how people actually rebound anymore. And also, rebounding involves not just your positioning against the uh, the, the the man trying to, to out rebound you, but also where the ball bounces. Right? These did not look like <laughs> great point. <laughs> these did not look like egregious misses. Yeah, he didn't get his butt up against uh, Kennedy Meeks. But still, I mean, he, you know, Kennedy Meeks also made a great move to get around him and grab the ball. On the other hand, if you Google box out drills, you get over a million hits. Oh, wow. Google, really? so. That's that many box out drills. No. Uh-huh. A lot of box out drills. He should have been Googling that just at, that at the free throw line. <laughs> yeah, that moment. At his phone out. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, one thing to consider, too, is that, like, he had 16 rebounds. Um, he was going against, like, a front line that was much bigger than his own. And they were missing a guy. I mean, like, you know, at that point, in the, it's at this point that I, I remember, oh, wait, they're missing a seven-foot guy who led their team in blocks all year long. Yeah, Chris Boucher <laughs> hurt Boucher. his knee, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, well, man, you know, he had to ba- do a lot of that banging by himself without this other guy. And like, I just, maybe he was tired, you know? <laughs> like, I, you know, can we, maybe there's something to that, that like he had a lot to worry about throughout the game and it showed up at a moment that was really inopportune for him and the Ducks, but. I just, I mean, he's giving himself a lot of credit when he says it's all their fault that they lost. Because, I mean, uh, it's not like Kennedy Meeks, like, just, you know, caught a break from from Jordan Bell and, you know, got that rebound. But there's a history of athletes blaming themselves. I mean, it's human nature in these kinds of moments. Um, And in some cases, it can be tragic. And athletes don't recover and have difficulty performing afterward. And in some cases, you know, and, and one hopes in this case. It will be forgotten, and he will go on to continue to play basketball and go to school and have a rich and fulfilling life. <laughs> no, <he's, laughs> he has no chance to have a rich and fulfilling life anymore, Stephen. Uh, it's over. It's done. Uh, there's always the possibility he could be Scott Norwood, you know, where this just haunts him. I mean, he did say that I'll never forget this, that I'll remember this forever, you know? Like, well, I mean, that's he, certainly true. Like, I remember sure. shitty plays I made in Little League. I do, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nick Anderson, you were uh, tweeting about uh, during the game, Joel, I noticed he missed four free throws in a row. That was the worst um, kind of choking free throw related performance in a basketball game, I think, ever. That was game one of the NBA finals, the uh, Magic against uh, the Rockets. And they were up three. And he just really, he only had to make one out of four free throws. And he, didn't make any of them. But looking at his Wikipedia entry, I didn't realize there was a kind of a happy ending because his career fell apart and he was down to shooting like 40% in free throws, having been a good free throw uh, shooter. But like in the in the 97, uh, 98 season, he was down to 36%. Oh but then uh, Scott, It was Chris Dudley. <laughs> but then um, towards the end of the year, his free throw shooting improved back up to 70%. Huh. Triumph over tragedy. Really? Good for him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a, as a Houston native and lifelong Houston Rockets fan, I thank him for his sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it was really, it was terrible to see somebody, like, collapse, like, on on national television in a moment that, like, you know, everybody is watching. Like, that, you know, he had a chance to ice that game. I thought, you know, going into that game, wait, why am I talking about the 1995 NBA Finals? That's what that's what will happen as a Houston Rockets fan, because we want people to know that we exist. 
Let us talk about Gonzaga briefly. They're pretty good. They are not they are not darlings, Cinderella's anymore, and lots of people have made that that point. And I think that the semifinal game completely demonstrated that. Um, I mean, they had uh, South Carolina, which was also a fantastic story. Were they the seven seed? Um, zero expectations. Terrific defense. Uh, they, they had been holding teams to uh, 0.88 points per possession. Gonzaga threw up 1.18 points per possession. And you start to realize, like, whoa, this freshman, Zach Collins, this is a blue-chip recruit. And if you don't follow college basketball closely and you think Gonzaga, scrappy, underdogs, recruit a lot of foreigners, you begin to realize that, no, they are among the, the elite in terms of uh, getting players to come and play for them. Uh, Zach Collins, one example. Clearly, Nigel Williams-Goss, another example, a transfer who chose to go there for a particular reason. This is a really good team. He played great. I don't know if you guys have had the same experience, but anytime you watch Gonzaga play with people who aren't big college basketball fans or sports fans, the number one reaction is, what is the deal with that enormous guy who looks like he's 40 years old? <laughs> and then it's like a 10-minute conversation about he's from Poland, Shema Karnowski. It's like his sixth year. He's a he's like a, a character. I don't, I don't mean to otherize Mr. Karnowski, but he's like— Or Poland. He, he's like a character, like a fictional character. He does not— In a children's fairy tale. He does not look like a normal basketball player you encounter— <laughs> Us particularly in a college game, but he had a dunk. I was like surprised that he could dunk. Really, he's like a seven. He's like a seven foot guy. You're like, I don't think you can lift off the ground, but he did. He had a dunk. Yeah, he's not. I mean, he's he's pretty good. I I, I like to call him old country. You know, there was new country, <laughs> but he's old country. So, who do we want to win in the game that will be over by the time many people? Yeah, why to are this? we why are we subjecting ourselves to this? We're just going to make want, fools of ourselves. No, no, we want Gonzaga. I mean, the North Carolina and Michael Powell in the New York Times did a nice job of recapitulating and encapsulating the academic scandal that North Carolina sports has been for many years. Um, and that does make me a little more inclined to root for, for scrappy Gonzaga. Do you hold that against UNC at all, Joel? Still um, to this day? Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of torn on it. Um, obviously, like some, something really wrong went there. But like, I, I, and I don't want to be so cynical as to say that this is the sort of thing that happens at most or all college athletic programs. But like, I, I don't see that as having much to do with the actual kids that are playing. No, it doesn't. That, that said, that said, uh, I just like Roy Williams and the dad gum thing. And I mean, I'm sure he's a you know perfectly delightful person. But I just kind of <laughs> like. It, it's just a little disingenuous to me that whole that whole dad gum stuff, and you know, I mean, if, you don't if you're think really, he's really you don't think he's really southern. I, <laughs> yeah. Is it dad gum or dad gum? That's a good question. I you know I just I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of Roy Williams in that way. That I just like when you if you want to be the CEO of this multi million dollar program and. You say, hey, look, I am in charge here. Like, that's how it normally works. And then all of a sudden there's an academic scandal. Of, hey, I didn't know what the hell was going on here. Um, so, yeah, I guess I want Gonzaga to win, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, it is Daggum, according to the parody Twitter account. So, D-A-G-G-U-M. I will be entering right. it into Merriam-Webster instantly. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For our last segment, we're going to try to cover uh, a bunch of different things. There were multiple topics we wanted to uh, cover today. Let's start with uh, the Raiders going to Vegas. This is uh, even in the category of bad stadium deals. This is a bad stadium deal. Stefan, what can you tell us about it? It's a bad stadium deal for the obvious reasons. It enacts a tax to pay for something that other people could pay for. Um, the owner of the Raiders, Mark Davis, is not a wealthy man comparatively. He's only wealthy because he, he owns the he owns the Oakland Raiders. His asset is selling the Raiders. That's why he will make money. When- Do we know if he still hangs out at the bar at P.F. Chang's and refers to it as his office? <laughs> According to the most recent profile, right? Yeah. I think he Wait, which, which P.F. Chang's is it, though? Is it is it one in Oakland or is it somewhere else? I think it's one in Oakland, yeah. and I would hope... Oh. I would hope that there are outlets in Vegas. Maybe we can do some uh, That was probably contingent on the move. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to that P.F. Chang's if, it, if it's the one I'm thinking of. And if it's, it's really nice. <laughs> Have you seen a guy who looks like he doesn't own the Raiders? Then that's, that's Mark Davis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of guys in there that look like they don't own the Raiders in that P.F. Chang's. Um, did you have more to, to add on the, uh, the stadium deal, Stevan? Um, the cost of the stadium is a record for a stadium, $354 per resident. A lot of that is going to be hit on tourists. There've been some media reports suggesting that that's inequitable too. And as much as it could affect the strip by taking money from one place and giving it to another place. Joel, what do you think of having an NFL team, uh, in Las Vegas? I mean, I think it fits. I think, and it was inevitable. And if it was going to be an NFL franchise, it should be the Raiders. But I mean, just think about the idea that, like, to earn any of that seven hundred and fifty million dollars, like Nevada is going to essentially Las Vegas is going to have to count on getting more tourists than they already get now, which doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, particularly if they have like higher hotel taxes, mm-hmm. that, that can be, that could be the sort of thing. Be like, well, I mean, hotels are expensive as hell in Vegas. Why would I go now? Um, and I can't imagine that that many people are lining up to fly into Vegas to see Derek Carr as opposed to like you know Britney Spears or something. Uh, <laughs> or, or maybe I don't know. I might, but I would probably prefer to see Derek Carr than Britney Spears. So I shouldn't like I should pretend that these people. Don't I love the idea of like Derek Carr having like a standing gig at the Bellagio. <laughs> Where he where he performs like feats of football daring do and card tricks, <laughs> that would be cool. Um, yeah, there is something perfect about the Raiders in Vegas, just because the Raiders just seem seem like kind of I don't know if scammy is the right word or skeevy. Not not exactly on the up and up like the the. The fans, like, it seems like a good fit. Like, the people you might see at, like, 3 a.m. in a, in a very mm-hmm. dark uh, casino. casino. Yeah. <laughs> Casinos are not dark, though. They're very bright to keep right. you in there. All yeah, they, want, they want you to be fooled, right? Yeah. They don't want you to know. Yeah. A, I mean, uh, the, the, the other reason that this is the embodiment of, of perfect for the NFL is that it exposes the NFL's hypocrisy completely. The NFL, as recently as two or three years ago, was railing about – 
Las Vegas and gambling and we don't sully ourselves and we can't be associated in any way with gambling. And here we go. Guess what? Economic exigencies dictate once again that the NFL will take the money and go wherever they choose to go and find a way to try to spin themselves out of it. Right. It's also really interesting to me too, and, and, and particularly because it's the Raiders, is that the Raiders are a franchise that doesn't really seem to be contingent upon, like their fa- their fandom isn't really contingent upon like where they are, right? Like there's still a lot of like fans in Southern California that root for the Raiders. I had a cousin that lived in San Antonio who got Raiders stuff like that. I mean, they were they were a, a version of America's team in the way and for the exact opposite reasons that the Dallas Cowboys were. The Raiders have fans all over this country. They're a well-known franchise. I don't think anybody is going to be like, oh, well, they're not in Oakland anymore. I don't, I don't even think of them as necessarily even being an Oakland team. I just think of them being like a truly like a, uh, a Raider nation of its own, like just sort of floats over, you know, over the West Coast and, you know, <laughs> wherever it lands. You know, that just happens to be where they play. Hey, wherever it lands and it sucks tax dollars out of schools and hospitals, I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> they were 12 and 4 last year, but it still s- seemed fake. Like, just not quite buying the, f- I guess, it, they've just been bad for so long that their brand is badness. And it just takes a little while to shake that. But, it does feel, I think you're right, Joel, that they do have, because of the logo, because of the colors, because of the history, that they have this outlaw brand that can be reactivated, I think. And Vegas is obviously not going to hurt that outlaw image. And I think if they have a good record, if Derek Carr continues to be good at card tricks and quarterbacking, then <laughs> it does seem like kind of a good fit between franchise personality and city. We'll see, I suppose. Um, I also wanted to talk about this Tom Haberstroh story about uh, the Tinderization of the NBA, that being the dating app, Tinder. And there's a statistical claim in this piece. Um, it says, in the 87-88 NBA season, home teams won 68% of games. And circa now, uh, that's all the way down to 57 percent. And, you know, John Wertheim and Tobias Moskowitz in their book, uh, Scorecasting, argue that home field advantage in all sports is essentially a product of refereeing, just that referees tend to favor home teams. But the thesis here is that uh, a lot of home court advantage, at least back in the day, was players going out clubbing and trying to get with women into the wee hours of the night. And perhaps there's less of a home court advantage now that you can use apps to procure uh, companionship and a much more convenient and uh, time uh, efficient fashion. Do you buy that, Joel? Um, that's a really tough. Uh, I, I mean, I think I'd I trust Tom's reporting on this, and I definitely <laughs> I think... Tr- I like, trust Tom's reporting. I trust Tom's reporting on this. I, uh, um, he like, clearly has, has, you know, talked to every player Joel and all the, group, all the groupies. Tom's reporting. I mean, if Purple is not a reliable source, then I just don't know where yeah, it is. Yeah, ex- explain to the listeners who Purple is. Yeah, basically, Purple is your fixer. So, you like, the story opens... <laughs> 
um, in Miami, and there's this guy that's like taking this NBA All Star, unnamed NBA All Star, into Club Live, which is basically, you know, I think at this point is it the most popular and maybe the most profitable nightclub in the country. And this guy Purple can get you into the club, get you in VIP, like when stars, R and B, you know, rap stars, any any celebrity that you can think of wants to have a good time in Miami, they get in contact with this guy. And he can basically procure whatever you want, alcohol, women, you know, whatever. And so uh, Purple, uh, this this is how the story opens. And so I was like, well, obviously, you know, <laughs> Tom's sources are in order here. I mean, this is the guy that's right <laughs> at the center. Uh, and I follow, I, I follow Purple on uh, Instagram now as a result of that story. <laughs> And <laughs> what what kind of content is he providing on Instagram? Oh, great content! I mean, he goes and it was some, uh, a little workout Instagram video series the other day that I watched. I mean, he's pretty pretty swole guy. I didn't realize <laughs> him like that. Uh, um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, kind of a job requirement, right? Yeah, I mean, you would think that if you're going to be in that world, you got to have a little bit of a strong grip, right? Um, so yeah, so I I. I I definitely think that like there's been a professionalization and in the NBA and all across like professional sports where guys like are much more in tune with their bodies. Like there's this really interesting part of the story where Tom talks about how like guys don't drink alcohol anymore because it's like been proven that alcohol can affect your performance. Um, and so I definitely think that might be as much a part of it as like being a, it's, be, instead of it being it's just easier to find women off of instagram now you know right um, and like the you know the flights are you know better you know the better accommodations on right planes i mean just to try teams to, are smarter too i mean they have and players have nutritionists right. they, they ban alcohol on flights a lot of teams do because they know its effects and players recognize that if i suck for 40 of my games, the odds of my being desirable to another NBA team are reduced. Right. Yeah. So Zach Lowe was talking about this on a recent podcast about how whenever he goes out and talks to team execs, they, you know, a frequent topic of conversation is like, this guy goes out too much. And so I like the story because that is, I think, a cl clearly it's relevant to team performance and it's something that front offices and coaches think about is that this is a part of their teams and players lives that can affect stuff on the court and like the <laughs> procurement of sex and attempts to procure it is like an extremely uh you know important part of uh these uh these guys lives I'll, you know a lot of them and it's just it's cool to read a story that acknowledges yeah. that that is a like real thing that happens and doesn't just like pretend that that doesn't exist. Right. And I think that players also probably are bringing more pressure on each other to do the things that you want to do on the road, but to do them in ways that are less harmful to your performance and the team's performance. Right. I mean, and procure is strong, right? Because I mean, these are six foot seven, rich dude so like it can come to them as well like they don't have you know, it's they, they they don't have to spend the night and live uh chasing it they can come to them uh but yeah I, I do like that part of it because we all know these are the sorts of things that we just talk about and we say oh man if it would be awesome to be in the nba or you know or this guy is going to have you know trouble uh, adjusting to the road these are the sorts of things we're talking about and this sort of lays it out there and you don't often see that 
you know? Well, when it does surface, it's like in the Derrick Rose case um, where, you know, the civil suit where he's accused of gang rape. And, it, you know, when, like I, like I said, like when sex comes up, it's often in the context of like a really horrible accusation and not as like um, a kind of normative thing that like, you know, it's obviously like just a part of a part of life. And the fact that, uh, you know, the way that people date in the world has changed so dramatically in the last decade, obviously, it would affect rich and famous people, too. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls. And when you think of Athletic Letharios. Bo Belinsky always comes to mind for me. Are you familiar with his his work? The Bo Belinsky story. No. Yeah. What? I'm looking at the at the Wikipedia. He was linked romantically at one time or another to such women as Anne Margaret, Connie Stevens, Tina Louise, and Mamie Van Doren. Ooh. The last his fiance for a year. Contemporary player Mike Hagan once said Bo had more fun off the field than he did on the field. If Tinder existed, maybe he wouldn't have gone one in seven in 1963. A man out of time. All right, Joel, what is your Bobolinsky? Yeah, this is my Bobolinsky. You might want to call it the Rashawn Holmes of Afterballs. Um, so <laughs> I, I like I, that. Yeah, I want, I want to take a moment to muse upon the NIT champion for a second um, because it's made me reconsider the value of coaching and maybe – in some ways, rethink what I think about how uh, college athletes being compensated uh, should work. Um, but, you know, every year, five major college basketball programs get to end the year with a victory. Uh, not many people get geeked up for the college basketball invitational. But, hey, somebody has to win it. And this year it was Wyoming over Coastal Carolina. Congrats, Wyoming. Um, and it's worth reminding everyone, or maybe not, I don't know. But Wyoming went 8-10 and 10 in the Mountain West, a game behind San Diego State and two behind New Mexico, which just fired its head coach. But, you know, you win a tournament, and that's all that matters. Um, which leads me to my beloved Horn Frogs, my alma mater, which capped off their first 21 season in 12 years uh, with a win with a 32-point win over Georgia Tech uh, in the NIT title game last week. Um, Congratulations. Like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, shout out to Lee Nalen, Kurt Thomas, all those guys that uh, – Pave the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's been some enthusiasm around our program for like the first time in a couple of decades. And that's almost wholly because of the arrival of native son and alum Jamie Dixon, a one-time national coach of the 
Year Award winner. Um, now, I I don't know if the Sporting News' designation of Coach of the Year matters here, but it does for me for these purposes. Um, but anyway, uh, Jamie has started luring four-star recruits to t- TCU, and he took the remnants of a roster that finished two and sixteen in the Big Twelve last year and eight and sixty-four over the previous four years, and went and finished seventh in the Big Twelve this year, which is like a. a, a Whatever you think of it as a football conference, it's a pretty good basketball conference. Uh, apologies uh, from the LSU Nation for foisting Trent Johnson upon you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we did that to ourselves. We should have known. Um, and it helped. You know, one year we lost a coach to Ohio. Um, so, you know, it, it happens. But, you know, Jamie Dixon even beat Kansas this year in, 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 in the conference tournament. It was our first win over number one team in years. Um, so it made me think about, like, what happened uh, to the place – Jamie Dixon left behind, which is Pitt, which finished tied for 14th in the ACC and didn't even make the college basketball invitational, which, I mean, it's just a horror. Um, this is a one-year sample for both programs. These aren't trends. They're just a set of data points. But it'd be hard to argue with the idea that Jamie Dixon is invaluable. And so a lot of times we think about, oh, the players are the only things that matter. Like, you've got to have players. It's not the X's and O's. It's the Jimmy's and Joe's, right? But it actually got me thinking about something that Brian Curtis wrote at The Ringer uh, following the firing of Charlie Strong at the University of Texas. It's that there are no, there's no such thing as great programs just great coaches and maybe Jamie Dixon isn't great but he's good enough and he's made TC relevant for the first time since I graduated which was a long time ago so uh, I'm happy so anyway, that's it uh, I'm happy for you we're all happy Thank you. I'm happy for Lee Nalon uh, yeah. Stefan and Rashawn Holmes <laughs> what is your Bobolinsky? The Basketball Hall of Fame over the weekend announced its 2017 class. There's some familiar names. George McGinnis, Tracy McGrady, Rebecca Lobo, Bill Self, Muffet McGraw, Jerry Krause, Nick Gallus. Wait, who? Nick Gallus? <laughs> Unless you are a fan of Seton Hall in the 1970s, European hoops in the 1980s and 90s, or Greek, you've probably never heard of Nick Gallus. I am C. Gallus grew up in New Jersey. He was the third leading scorer in college in 1978, right behind Larry Bird. He was drafted that year by the Celtics. He sprained an ankle in camp and got cut and decided to play in Greece. I moved to Athens right after college in 1985 and found work at the Associated Press. Gallus by then was a star with Adis in the northern city of Thessaloniki. He was a six-foot gunner, quick, great passer, drove the lane fearlessly, hung in the air, double-clutched and finished. He averaged 31 points in his first season, 44 in his second, and above 35 for the next 10 years, and he dominated the tougher EuroLeague, too. A few months after I arrived, Gallus led the Greek national team to the World Cup final round for the first time, so I wrote a piece for the AP and interviewed Gallus by phone. We're starting to catch up with the rest of the world, he told me. In competition, Greece was, but the Greek league was a total joke. The competition was shitty. The finances were a disaster. Coaches were terrible. Facilities were worse. That AP story earned me a byline in the International Herald Tribune. Happiest moment of my young journalism life. I'm holding up a photocopy for Josh to look at. Uh, The best detail in that story was that there were a total of three hardwood courts in the entire country at the time. The top club in Athens, Panathinaikos, played on a green plastic court laid over concrete. 
But totally thanks to Gallus, the Greeks were getting into basketball. I wound up coming back to the States in the spring of 1987, and one of my biggest career regrets is not staying a few months longer until Greece hosted the 12-team European Championships. Ethniki Omada went on a crazy run. They beat Italy in the quarterfinals, and then Yugoslavia and Drazen Petrovic in the semis before facing the mighty Soviet Union in the championship game. The Greek TV feed is on YouTube, and it is awesome. The shorts are short, and the nets are too. The crowd is deafening, whistling at every call against Greece, singing, chanting. The Soviets are a really good team. Their lineup includes Alexander Volkov, who would become the first Russian in the NBA and is also on the Hall of Fame, Sarunas Marshalonis, the Lithuanian, who would go on to have a long NBA career, and a gigantic seven-foot-three dude with a scary mustache named Vladimir Chechenko. But the game is tight all the way. Down four with a minute to go, Gallus drops in a runner over the Soviet giant, 89-87. Greece steals. A Greek is fouled. He makes both shots, 89-89. The Soviets make a final shot, but it's just after the buzzer. Bedlam on the court, overtime. The Soviets again take a lead. Gallus runs the floor, draws a foul. Then he drives the lane again and lofts the teardrop over two Soviet bigs to put Greece up 101-98 with 45 seconds to go. The announcer is screaming, Oichi tripondo, oichi tripondo, no three-pointer. And a Soviet, of course, drains one with 36 to play. Gallus brings it up, dishes out of a double team with seven seconds left. There's a missed shot at six, an offensive rebound at four, and a foul. Argiris Kamburis drains both shots. The Soviets clang a three off the top of the backboard, and Greece wins 103-101. Let's listen. The Greek team is champions of Europe. It is one of the biggest surprises in international sports. It is a shock. It is a national achievement. Greece is champion of Europe. Gallus dropped 40 on the Soviets that day 30 years ago, and his legend was sealed. He was known as a pain in the ass. He rarely gave interviews, frequently clashed with coaches and management. He left Adis when the team president wanted him to hang him up and coach. And at 37, his career ended at Panathinaikos when he left the game at halftime because he wasn't getting enough minutes. But that was Gallus as obstinate and tough off the court as on. Red Auerbach allegedly once said that not signing Nick Gallus was the biggest mistake of his career. NBA teams did come after him a couple of times, but Gallus liked Greece and liked being a star and stayed. After joining the handful of men to make the Hall of Fame, despite never having played in the NBA, Gallus tweeted over the weekend, Ipsistitimi semia apotiskaliteres stigmes tizoismu ime evgnomon. The highest honor in one of the best moments of my life. I am thankful. Sincharitiria, Nick Gallus. Oh, that was <laughs> moving. You, do you think Nick Gallus said it like he dropped 40 on them too? On the Soviets, yeah. Do you think he said like, yeah, I dropped 40 on the Soviets? Do you, <laughs> do you either know or, 
or suspect that he is Giannis's uh, idol. <laughs> <laughs> With no uh, Nick Gallus, there'd be no Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think that is probably true. He is the idol, actually, of a lot of uh, slightly older players, though I'm sure Gallus was uh, was one of Giannis's one of Giannis's idols. I mean, the dude is like legend in Greece. Him and the coach of uh, of the national team, who was on that 1987 team too, um, are are the man, the man. And the coach just re-upped, so Greece is very excited. What a fun time in basketball that was. I mean, Oscar Schmidt and this guy. Yeah. Totally. And Oscar Schwartz, one of the other guys in the Hall of Fame that never played in the NBA. Josh, what's your Bo Belinsky? So over the weekend, Lexi Thompson had a pretty big lead at the first major of the LPGA season. This is uh, women's golf. A couple interesting facts. The LPGA has a major called the ANA Inspiration. Did not know that. The Inspiration. Um, it was also played on the Dinah Shore tournament course. This is a very, uh, very women's golfy. They're leaning <laughs> their women's golf is leaning into being women's golf. So <laughs> she was up by three on the back nine on Sunday when a rules official approaches her, uh, and says, we were informed by a viewer, a television viewer that you placed the ball improperly on the 17th hole on Saturday. That's an entirely different day. So they show the replay on television. And as golfers do, she puts the coin down to mark the ball and then puts the ball back like an inch, maybe like a half an inch. It's like more like a half inch. In front of uh, the to coin. The, to the left of the coin, yeah. Conferring absolutely no advantage and there being absolutely no intentionality to this behavior. And... Nevertheless, she's penalized two strokes for putting the ball in the wrong place and an additional two strokes for signing an incorrect scorecard. Which was not incorrect when she signed it. Oh, my God. Uh, And to their credit, like the announcers on the broadcast, Mike Tirico included, did not try to hide what was happening. They said, you know, at the end, Thompson eventually ended up losing the tournament despite um, fighting valiantly to the end. Tariko says it feels like we're crowning the wrong champion. Tiger Woods on Twitter, who has ample time to uh, tweet these days, uh, not competing in uh, the Masters this coming week, says that, you know, this is absurd and this can't happen and, um, you know, bad, bad on you, golf. But just got to respect golf for just being really into the rules and also being really into time travel. So... (laughs) After I heard this, I placed a few phone calls. Um, hey, Eric Gregg. Oh, unfortunately, he's not. He's no longer living. But hey, Eric Gregg, uh, 1997 National League Championship Series, Game 5, that uh, strike call on Fred McGriff on that uh, Levon Hernandez pitch. We're going to have to take that back. I watched it on TV, and that was well outside the strike zone. We're going to run, we're gonna have to run back the entire 1997 National League season. Uh, hey, uh, Raiders, Patriots, uh, Tom Brady, Tuck Rule, 2001 AFC playoffs. We looked at the replay. We now have enhanced HD capabilities. That was, in fact, a fumble. We're going to have to start it again uh, at 13 to 10, and we're just going to have to run back the next 16 seasons. I would like to see that. Those the same players yeah, out there. Oh, man. Today. 
The yeah. Houston Oilers got jobbed on a, on a on, in the AFC Championship in 1980 on a touchdown catch by Mike Renfro. So I'd love to see you know them suit up you know Franco Harris and just get all those guys up back there. <laughs> so. um, Roy Jones, Roy Jones Jr., Park C. Hun, Seoul oh. Olympics in 1988. Probably the canonical referee uh, jobbing of the last uh, 30 years, at least since the 1972 U.S. USSR uh, basketball game. But wait, I made a phone call. We're going back we're going back to Seoul. It's 1988 again. Roy Jones Jr., you have a second chance. But the reason that the reason that you can even plausibly do this, even though it's absurd, is that golf is a rare sport where I guess cricket is another example where you have a multi-day tournament where you just pick up where you left off the previous day. So it's not like, you know, Lexi Thompson won on Saturday and you're like, oh, you need to redo the round. It's like you have a cumulative score over four days. So you can, even though it's stupid and horrible, you can, you know, dock four strokes and just keep on going. So here's my suggestion for how to ruin sports. Basketball, I think, is the natural. You could totally ruin basketball by having a playoff series where, you know, say Joel's Rockets in in game one – we review the tape and like, oh, actually, we didn't see, you know, Nick Nick Anderson's, uh, oh, no, there was a lane violation. Um, you know, I, I saw uh, the replay. I'm going to call in during the third quarter of game two of the NBA finals. There was a lane violation in game one. Cumulative scoring in NBA playoff series. Let's make it happen. We need to ruin more sports by allowing fans <laughs> To call in and retroactively tell the referees they made bad calls. What? This is a great idea. I'm really an idea. And you know, like the NFL would actually go for it. So, any any excuse you can have to just go under the hood. They, we love going under the hood. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. I think we solved a lot of problems in uh, in sports uh, with this last afterball. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Also take our survey, slate.com slash survey. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thank you to Joel Anderson for being our guest today. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for having me. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.